You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. My name is Andy Wood. I have the joy of being married to Grace and the joy of being dad to Eli and Manny. Uh, the Wood family has been a member here at Citizens since the summer of 2020. And one of the things that drew us to this church is the church's mission statement. Citizens Church exists to cultivate a diverse community of disciples who belong to Jesus and seek the good of Birmingham. I love every word of that mission statement, and I love that Pastor Justin faithfully puts it before us every Sunday. So if that's our mission, it seems fair every once in a while to ask the question, how are we doing? And I can say that from the community standpoint, 10 out of 10 would join again. We love you guys. We have been blessed so greatly by so many of you in this room. We have felt your love and your encouragement and your support. We love being a part of this church. Special shout out to everybody who has worked in the nursery with my boys. Thank you. Thank you so much. So on the community aspect, I think we're doing really, really well. Another possible sign of success is that as I stand up here this morning, I don't know everyone in the room. For those of you who've been with us for a few years, you can probably remember the days when you knew by name and had the phone number of every single person in the room at every single Sunday gathering, and you could rattle off attendance in like two seconds at lunch after church on Sunday. Now, numbers are not the only indicator of success, but I think we could praise God for the way that he's grown our church. This desire to know If we're doing citizens right, it's a natural desire that all human beings have. We all want to know if we're doing it right, whatever it may be. And the original readers of Luke's gospel would have had that same desire. They wanted to know, am I doing it right? But their it would have been Christianity itself. When they trusted in Jesus, suffering came into their life. When they trusted in Jesus, Their family and friends turned on them. They had the same desires to do the old sinful lifestyle that they were doing before they met Jesus, but now they can't do them. And sometimes they do and they feel guilty. Am I doing this right? And that is my story. I didn't come to faith in Jesus till my mid-20s after 20 plus years of being an absolute fool. And when I came to Jesus, my life did not all of a sudden get perfect. I still had no money, but now I was supposed to give it to Jesus? I still had the old sinful desires, which I still would sometimes do, and now I feel guilty. I would go to church every Sunday. I would look around at the people who seemed like they had it all together, and I would wonder, am I doing this right? And maybe some of you are in that same position this morning. You're wondering, am I doing it right? Shout out to my children. (laughs) Maybe some of us are in that same place this morning. And I'm also confident in a group this size that there are some people in this room who aren't following Jesus right now. And you might be wondering, what would it mean if I did follow Jesus? So whichever group you find yourself in, by asking and answering three questions, I wanna make this point for all of us. So it should be up here on the screen for all my note-taking friends. This will be up on the screen three different times. uh, So don't feel like you gotta get it all right now. Here's the main point of the sermon I'm telling you right now. The point is this. Jesus is the savior who saves by dying So we can only follow him by taking up our cross and walking the same road. So the first question we want to ask and answer is, in many ways, 
the most important question in the universe. Question number one, who is Jesus? Let's read verses 18 through 20 again. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has written. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, Jesus opens this dialogue by asking his disciples an easy question with very little on the line. He asks them, what are people saying about me? And Luke records for us three answers. The disciples answer back. People are saying John the Baptist. Some people are saying Elijah or a prophet of old. Now, the John the Baptist answer stems from the fact that Jesus is related to the now deceased John, and they had a very similar message. The kingdom is here. Repent and enter into the kingdom. But we know that John is dead, and we also know that reincarnation is, not, is no such thing, and so we can rule that answer out. The other two answers, though, though they're both partially wrong, illuminate something very important that would have been in the air and in the minds and hearts of Jesus's original hearers. You see, the Jews knew that God's desire was for them to be in the promised land under the rule of an Israelite king. And this desire stretches all the way back to Abraham. At the time of Jesus' ministry, however, the Jews are in the promised land, but they're under the thumb of the hated Romans. Now, the prophets, men like Amos and Isaiah, they had talked about the Lord coming to rescue his people from their enemies in an event that they called the day of the Lord. The prophets included signs that this day was approaching, and one of these signs can be found in the very last book of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4. This is actually the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. By wondering if Jesus was this long-awaited Elijah figure, the Jews were expressing their hope that deliverance, the long-awaited deliverance, is about to come. And the other answer runs along a similar track. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses promised the Israelites that a greater and final prophet would come from God. Chapter 18, verse 15 of Deuteronomy says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So this is Moses speaking to them. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then verse 18, God says to Israel, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And over the centuries, this final prophet had also become associated with God's end time rescue of his people. So taken together, these answers reveal the deep longing of the Jewish people, a longing we all share even to this day, that God would step in and make all things right. Now, none of these answers, though, as well-intentioned as they are, they're not what Jesus is looking for. And so he ratchets up the pressure and he asks the question of all questions. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, to no one's surprise, Peter answers first. But somewhat surprisingly, Peter gets it right. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, if the next word out of my mouth was a cuss word, I can almost guarantee what would happen. 
Your eyes would shoot wide open. You'd inhale sharply. Maybe some of you would gasp. Justin would probably awkwardly step up and like pull me off of the stage. There'd be a physical response to that word that I said. And I think that's a pretty close approximation of the physical response that the other 11 disciples would have had to Peter calling Jesus the Christ. So why would they have that response? We, we say that word all the time. We're very familiar with that word. What's so significant about Peter calling Jesus the Christ of God? Well, the word itself, Christ, is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ and Messiah both mean anointed. Now in the Old Testament, objects could be anointed. The furniture in the tabernacle would be anointed. The tabernacle itself would be anointed. But the most prominent usage of this idea of anointing in the Old Testament had to do with anointing people. Priests would be anointed for their service, prophets would be anointed, and kings would be anointed. Now, whether you were a human being or a lamp in the tabernacle, by being anointed, it was sort of a public proclamation that this thing, this person is being set apart for a special purpose. But like every word, like any word, over the centuries, new meanings and significance have become attached to this word, Messiah. Just like in 1940s London, the word blitz would have brought one image to your mind, but I guarantee you, none of you thought of the Germans dropping bombs just now. You thought of Alabama football on a Saturday, right? Like, so this word has developed in meaning over the decades. As God would reveal his word to the prophets, these prophets would write the word down. And after they were done writing it, they would study it. They would seek to understand it. The next generation of prophets would study that same word. And then God would speak to them and they would write that down. And their development and understanding of these ideas would grow. It took about a thousand years for the Old Testament to be written down. So words that were used by Moses in 1400 BC, by the time we get to the apostle Peter 1400 years later, have a whole new level of significance and importance. So what was on Peter's mind when he called Jesus the Christ? For the Jews of Peter's day, Jesus is not being called a lampstand in the tabernacle. For the Jews of Peter's day, the Christ would be three things. He would be the deliverer, he would be the redeemer, and he would be the ruler from the line of David. So first, Jesus is the Christ who delivers. He's the Christ who delivers. Now, this expectation began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned, God sought them out and he displayed grace by declaring his intention of delivering his now broken world from the effects of sin. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the devil, I will put enmity, enmity means warfare, hatred, conflict, strife. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise that God made meant that one day a human being would be born who would reverse the effects of the fall and banish death and suffering from God's world. Peter is saying, Jesus, you're the one who's going to deliver. But there's more. Jesus is the Christ who redeems. Now, to redeem someone means to purchase their freedom. And God himself had redeemed Israel from Egyptian slavery back in the Exodus 
And as the centuries rolled by and the people of God were oppressed and conquered by one nation after another, the concept of Messiah had added to it the idea of the Messiah being the one who would set God's people free once and for all. So Peter is saying to Jesus, Jesus, you're the one who delivers. You're the one who redeems. But third, Jesus is the Christ who rules. The origin of these messianic expectations really began in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, God says to King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. From this moment forward, it was understood that the Christ, when he came, he would be from the line of David and he would rule forever. This hope in a, a new and greater David is why centuries after David has been dead, you'll read things like this in Isaiah. It's a verse you hear every Christmas. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Or a couple hundred years after that in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Or one more from Ezekiel. And I will set up over them, over my people, one shepherd, my servant, David. Remember, David has been dead for nearly 500 years. My servant, David, he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant, David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. In other words, this is certainly going to happen. Understand, my friends, that for Peter to call Jesus the Christ was no small thing. This was nothing less than Peter saying to Jesus, you are the one that millions of people have been waiting for for thousands of years. You are the one who's gonna deliver us. You're the one who's gonna rescue us. You're the fulfillment of all of our hopes. Now, as we're gonna see, there's more to being the Christ than Peter knows, but there's not less. So before we go on and ask our second question, may I speak to anybody in the room who's exploring Christianity? Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Jesus is the only one who can rescue you. Jesus is better than your wildest dreams. Follow Jesus and enjoy life and life abundantly. For those in the room currently following Jesus, I, I offer you an encouragement and a challenge. The encouragement is this. Your king has already delivered and redeemed you. You are promised troubles in this life, both from within and from out there, but Christ has won the victory and you are commanded to live a life of hope. We are to lift up our heads because Christ has won. But here's the challenge. Does our life reflect his rule? As Jesus himself said to us in Luke 6, why do we call him Lord, Lord, if we don't do what he tells us? 
The question we should ask is in what area, not is there, but in what area of our life do we need to repent and give control of it to Jesus? Is it our money, our time, our relationships, whatever it might be, we can give it to him knowing that we have a gentle king and we can trust ourselves in his hands. Now, I said at the beginning that I wanted to make one point today and I believe in repetition, so here it is again. Jesus is the savior who saves by dying, so we can only follow him by taking up our cross and walking the same road. And we're making that point by asking three questions, and here's the second question. What kind of savior is Jesus? Let's look at verses 21 and 22 of our passage. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, here's a question that I I think and hope that you've been asking yourself as we've been studying the gospel of Luke, or if you've read through the gospel of Mark, why in the world does Jesus keep telling people to not tell anyone who he is? I mean, aren't we supposed to go and tell everybody, go tell the nations? Don't we sing, like Tiffany made all the kids come up here and sing, go tell it on the mountain. (laughs) Like, was Tiffany wrong? Is she leading them astray? Are we supposed to be quiet? Well, no, Tiffany was not wrong. You did great. We are to go and tell. But Jesus is demanding that his followers at this moment keep silent about his identity because he needs to deal with their confusion. First, Jesus has to deal with their confusion about enemies. For Peter and the rest of the Jews of his day, all the things that the Messiah would do, deliver, redeem, rule, these are all political and military realities. They see when the Jews are gathered together in their basement and they're playing darts, they've got a picture of Julius Caesar at the bullseye. They see the Romans as their biggest enemy. But Jesus, my friends, has much bigger fish to fry than Caesar. Jesus knows that God's people's ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood, but Satan, sin, and death. And that is who Jesus is here to destroy. As the author of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has a plan. He and the Father have a plan of exactly when and how and where he is going to die. And Jesus knows that if word begins to spread that the long-awaited deliverer is out gathering fighters in the desert on an attempt to storm Jerusalem and drive out the Romans, then the Roman army is going to fall on them like a ton of bricks and kill him. And Jesus is going to be killed by the Romans, but it will be at a time and a place of his choosing. Nothing is going to keep Jesus from dying on a cross. So he tells them to remain silent. The second form of confusion that Jesus has to clear up is a confusion about methods. Peter and the other Jews thought, well, since our enemy is a political and military enemy, we're going to win by killing them. But Jesus is here to win by being killed. Now, why is that Jesus's method? Well, the biggest problem that everybody in this room, everyone in this world faces is this. We have sinned against a holy God. Every other problem in the universe, every single one pales before that awful and inescapable fact. We have broken the laws of God. 
We have declared a war against our king. We are traitors who deserve death and hell. Now, if God excuses our sin, winks his eye, looks the other way, then he is not a holy and just God and he ceases to be God. If God judges us for our sin, he is still holy, he is still good, but we will be in hell. In Jesus, God has found a way to be both just and merciful at the same time. Jesus is going to die. He's gonna win by dying and he is gonna die for sins that he did not commit, but that we have committed. Jesus is going to bear the wrath of God that we should be facing. He is gonna die so that we can live. He has done everything necessary, my friends, for us to have the kind of life that God desires for us. All we have to do is respond in repentance and faith. That's the kind of savior he is. And so for the rest of Jesus' ministry, he is gonna be teaching and modeling for his disciples what it means for him to be the Christ. But until they understand more fully, they need to remain silent. So what kind of savior is Jesus? First, Jesus is the savior who suffers. Jesus did not appear on a cross at age 33. He lived a full life full of every type of suffering, sickness, weakness, temptation that you and I will face, and he passed every test. And one of the things that this means is not only is he qualified, not only is he able to die for us, but that means that whenever we go to him with whatever situation, we will find Jesus to be a sympathetic high priest. He is a savior who has suffered. He is a savior who has compassion for sufferers. But he does more than suffer. Jesus is the savior who dies. Now, the, to the Jews, a Messiah who wins by dying makes about as much sense as a four-sided triangle. To my math challenge friends out there, let me just tell you, those don't exist. No such thing. But God's law is clear that sin must be paid for by a death. And so Jesus is not just here to suffer. He's not just here to be a good example. He is here to die. He's going to die. And looking back through the cross, we can see that this expectation of the suffering Messiah has been here all along. I mean, that verse I read to you from Genesis, Genesis 3, 15, the Jews love to look at that first part where the, the deliverer is going to crush the head of the serpent, but as he crushes the serpent, the serpent is going to strike his heel. But maybe the clearest passage of all of this together, the suffering, the dying, and spoiler alert, the resurrection, is from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 8 through 12, Isaiah is writing about someone that he calls the servant. So the, the he is the servant. Look what Isaiah says about the servant. By oppression and judgment, he, the servant, was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living? That means he was dead. He was killed. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So for no fault of his own, the servant has now been killed. The servant has now been buried. But Isaiah warns anybody who wants to dance on the grave of the servant, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul, the, the, the suffering servant, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Wait, what? He's dead. How's he going to see it? Keep reading. 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. It has always been God's plan for his servant, the Messiah, to die for sins that he did not commit, to be buried, but then to live again, to see the fruit of his work and to pray for his people. Friends, did you know that Jesus is praying for you right now? The author of Hebrews says that he lives to make intercession. He loves to pray for you. He loves to pray for me and you more than you like to be prayed for. Jesus lives and he lives to make intercession. And that's because of the third thing. The third thing about Jesus, our savior, Jesus is the savior who rises. His resurrection is evidence that the payment has been accepted. The way is now open to go back to God. So to my friends who might be in the room considering Christianity, who haven't yet trusted in Christ, do you see how awful your sin is? There's no amount of good that we can do to wipe our sin away. And there is no hope. There is no chance that God will look at you on judgment day and shrug and say, hey, everybody makes mistakes. You're only human. That will not happen. But at the same time, do you see how deep God's love is for you? He died for you. He wants you more than you want him. Don't turn away. Come to Jesus and begin eternal life right now. To my friends who are following Jesus, there are three things I wanna say to you before we look at our last question. One, just like Jesus, your biggest enemies, my biggest enemies, they're spiritual, not flesh and blood. Your biggest problem today is not what's being offered for sale at Target. As vile as that is, it's, flesh and, it's not flesh and blood. It's your sin and my sin. Friends, one of the things I hope characterizes citizens is that we hate our sin more than we hate the sins of others. Two, be amazed at the love of Christ for you. You don't understand it well enough. I don't understand it well enough. It doesn't move me like it should. And that's when we studied Ephesians. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that you would be given strength so that you can grow in your understanding and the grace and love of God, to be amazed at just how loved and secure you are. And three, there's no reason for us to be silent about who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's tell people about Jesus. So I said at the beginning, I wanted to make one point today and for a third and final time, here it is. Jesus is the savior who saves by dying. So we can only follow him by taking up our cross and walking the same road. So we have one final question to ask and answer to help us make that point. Given the type of Christ Jesus is, what does it mean to follow that kind of Christ? Let's read 23 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, when Peter gave his answer, you are the Christ of God, he was likely thinking about what color toga he'd be wearing during the triumphal march through Jerusalem, or just how many gold pieces can I accept before I start to look greedy? I mean, after all, being the right-hand man of the eternal king has to come with some perks, am I right? But Jesus dashes these hopes by teaching us all what it means to follow a God with scars. First, it means giving up your rights. You will find it difficult to carry a cross and all of your rights at the same time. And so Jesus says to us all, first, give up your rights. Deny yourself. Jesus denied himself the right to be worshiped and adored. And in that same way, following in his steps with his spirit, we are to give up our rights to be treated in a way that we should be treated. We are to give up our rights to look out for number one, to call the shots in our own lives. Following Jesus means he always comes first, others always come second, and we come last. When I was a kid growing up, uh, my dad was a pastor and it was a small Southern Baptist church, so you knew, you know we had some potlucks. You know we had some potlucks. And uh, I love potluck Sunday. I love to eat. <laughs> and to have all, as my wife can tell you, to have an option to eat all the different types of food is just, I think it's what heaven's going to be like. <laughs> Every Sunday, though, my dad would, like, you know, we'd preach the sermon, we'd do all the things. And uh, remember, I wasn't a Christian, so I was really just thinking about this potluck. And my dad would, after everything was over, he'd come up, be like, hey, we're going to go over to the fellowship hall and we're going to have a potluck. So let me pray. And then he would pray for us. And then when he, he would say amen, and every time he would say, would kids eat last? And me and my siblings were just like, oh. <laughs> but that's the mindset for a Christian. We eat last, right? We care about Jesus. We care about others. And then we trust, as we saw in the passage last week, we're going to have enough left for us. <laughs> I'm just laughing because there's my son, Manny, running away. All uh, right. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Kaylee got him. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so following Jesus means giving up your rights. Second, it means choosing the hard road. In Jesus' day, if you had a cross necklace or a tattoo, people would have thought you were a lunatic because the cross was not just a physically painful way to die. It was designed by the Romans to slowly and agonizingly rip your life away while also shaming and humiliating you. And Jesus says, that's what I want to characterize your life. Pick up your cross daily, every day, follow me. It's that daily word that kills. Because even an unbeliever can throw himself in front of a bullet once, right? We know that if we don't want to die, but I know if I do this, people will think well of me and let's just go for it. But Jesus does not call us to make the occasional grand gesture. Every day, we are called to take up our cross, to put the needs of others in front of us, and that, my friends, is exhausting. But that's the life Jesus calls us to. He is telling us, he's telling you the truth. Following Jesus means every day and in every way, you follow him down, down, down into humility, down, down, down into suffering. You walk the road that he walked. You face persecution for his sake. You give up every right for the sake of his kingdom. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You give him nothing less than everything you have. And my friends, this is, a, this is a hard word. 
It's hard for me to say as I'm speaking, I can think of all the times in my life and all the areas of my life where I don't want to do this. And it's teaching like this that led Jesus to have very few followers at the time of his death. Taking up your cross every day is painful work. Why would anyone do this? And we do it this way for two reasons that Jesus tells us in the text. Reason number one, the other way doesn't work. Period. If you choose worldly pleasures or short-term gain over Jesus, you might win, you might get it, but then you lose it all. Trying to avoid the pain, trying to save your life guarantees the loss. That's what Jesus warns us, that if we gain everything from an earthly perspective, we have lost everything eternally. Friends, you are going to die. Everyone you know is going to die. Everything you own and value is going to rot away and be gone. And then what? Then you stand before God. And Jesus says, if you live like you don't know me today, I'm going to declare once and for all eternity that I don't know you on that day. But there's another reason, a happier reason, that we should choose living this way. And it's this. Jesus' way leads to joy. Those who lose their life every day for Jesus will, in the end, have saved it. And you'll have gained everything. Those who confess Christ, those who humbly live for Christ, you get to enter into the kingdom now. And you get to enjoy the gift of forgiveness, of adoption. You get to enjoy the proclamation that there's no condemnation for you. You get to enjoy having his Holy Spirit You get to enjoy brothers and sisters in Christ. You get all of that the moment you trust and you get to look forward to the future with hope. Because what we have now, as amazing as it is, is Paul says, no human eye has seen or or ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Whatever you imagine heaven to be like, it is going to be infinitely better. That's what we get when we follow Jesus. But we have to do it in this order. First the cross, then the crown an eternal crown, eternal joy, eternal happiness. It begins the moment you trust in Christ and it will last forever. To my non-Christian friends, thank you for coming and listening today. I pray, I pray for you, I pray for you this morning that you will, like Peter, confess that Jesus is the Christ. I want nothing less than that. I pray that you'll take up your cross and I pray that as you do, you will know and experience that you're not alone. The cross that Jesus gives is heavy, but he's never intending you to carry that by yourself. When you turn from your sins and you trust in Christ, you will receive his spirit and he's gonna help you walk the way of Jesus. And you also receive a new family. We're not perfect. I I, I spoke highly of citizens and I wasn't putting on a sales job. I really do love them. But none of us in this room are perfect. And if you come and be a part of this family, you're gonna experience that lack of perfection, just to be honest. But we love you, and we'd love to help you walk with Jesus. We can tell you about some of the mistakes that we've made, and hopefully you won't walk into those same traps. But to my Christian friends, just praise God that you've confessed Jesus. I praise God that I have you as a brother and sister. And so my call, my encouragement and challenge to all of us is that we would choose every day to take up our cross and walk behind Jesus. May we grow in our understanding of the grace and love of God, and may we suffer with hope. Jesus is going to win a victory far greater than Peter could imagine that day. 
He has won a victory whose impact will last for all of eternity. And there's still more yet to come. Satan, sin, and death, and evil, they were defeated, finally defeated 2,000 years ago, but they weren't removed. We suffer under them every day. But when Jesus returns, they will be banished forever, and we will rejoice forever with him. And that's why for 2,000 years, the church has prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus.